Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows and I'm the director and owner of Snowpro Ski School based here in the Valley in Switzerland. Um, this week I'm joined by Ed Drake, former uh, Great Britain downhill skier and uh, Olympian. Um, Ed also runs an absolutely brilliant podcast called the Ski Racing Podcast, which uh, which cover, which follows the, um, the, the the Alpine World Cup season um, during the winter. And he's also, uh, as, as summer is here and lots of people are available and not in sort of training blocks, he's got some amazing interviews on, um, which I think coming up over the summer as well. So uh, very much looking forward to uh, to listening to those. But Ed has been on my hit list as a guy to guy to interview for a long time. I, I've been looking really to, or you'll find out during the podcast, but I've been really looking to get his insights on, on you know, being coached his thoughts on being coached and um uh, as an athlete and uh, and and how that relates also to how he does some coaching himself these days as well um in this first half we, we we're mainly talking about ed's um ski racing career which um which goes on for quite a long time there's a lot in it and there's a lot of detail involved and there's also a, a especially poignant bit i think which which talks about you know what happens to those those ski racers or athletes in general when they come to the end or of their their career, or they drop out of of, of programs that they might be in. So, uh, so that's what we're we're looking at in the first half here. Um, and uh, and in, enjoy this half, and I'll catch you in the middle somewhere. Uh, welcome to the Ski Instructor Podcast, Ed Drake. How are you? Um, very well, thank you. Yeah, managing to stay healthy. Oh well, that's good. That's really, really good. Um, I wanted, well, one, I'll put my cards on the table. You, I'm a big fan of the Ski Racing Podcast. Oh, thanks, mate. Um, it's fantastic, and it's it's essential listening if you're following the World Cup um, or the shortened World Cup this season. So, yeah. uh, so um, I want to. Uh, hopefully, we'll come to talking about that a little bit later, but. Um, what I really wanted to do at the start was to kind of get a get a handle on on your your sort of skiing career, mm-hmm. um, you know where you came from, where you came out of, um, and where it took you. So, so I don't know, maybe if you can give us that that as a sort of potted history, and then we can uh, we can go from there. Yeah, well, I can't. I just sort of fell into racing really, sort of by accident. Really, uh, my parents are keen skiers my dad skied from when he was young uh, my mum only learned when she was 30 odd but it was addicted and so we started going on ski holidays from as young as I can remember I learned to ski when I was about three um and then just sort of yeah f- fell in love with it I've got an older brother and a younger sister and as uh, any siblings are they're always chasing their their older siblings and my brother started going off skiing and I was stuck in crash and yeah. And, appa- and apparently I said that I wanted to go to, I wanted to ski, not do crash. And mum said, well, when you can ski, that's, you, you can go. And so apparently from then on, I was, uh, you know, strapped into plastic skis with my shoes, you know, with my shoes on, trying, yeah, yeah. To, trying to catch up my brother. And so that was sort of my skiing to start with was from a very young age, but racing sort of, mum wasn't sure what to do with us on an inset day. And she took me and my older brother, because my sister was too young, to um, Hillingdon dry ski slope uh, on an inset day and me and my brother were just skiing up and down and there was a guy there and he just said you, you know your kids look like they can ski do you want to join the race club and that was it huh? um, 
and, and that was an expensive conversation for my parents. <laughs> <laughs> that was an expensive inset day. Yeah, it's funny how they lure you in, isn't it? It's just a chance absolutely. conversation. Absolutely. But then, so I then did stuff back home with Kandahar, uh, Hillington, dry ski slope, and then, but sort of racing, I I then did on snow as well. Through I, we used to go to Morsian every year. Okay. And that and that was where I got my sort of love affair with. Uh, as, a, as you know when i became a little bit older and able to grasp it you know that's the place where my nostalgia takes me to go skiing people always ask where's your favorite place to go skiing and i always end up with about five different answers and it uh, yeah. but it depends on in what context you mean in terms of my love of, of skiing and where i feel most at home and have the best memories it's got to be morzine because that's you know that's my childhood that's growing up yeah um but yes, yeah, so then I did a, a few races for the resort. So there was um, a, a competition called the uh, Twelder Ski. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is what it's called. I can't remember now. It's been too long. Um, I think that's what it's called. And it's a lowlanders race. So you, okay. you mostly it's populated by French. Yeah. They're just not allowed to, to live in ski resorts. So most it's Parisians uh, and dotted around here, there and everywhere. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so yeah, I went and raced for the resort, and it took me a couple of goes, but I, I won this uh, the Etoile d'Or. That's what it's called, the Etoile d'Or. And um, uh, and I won my weight in Orangina, um, <laughs> but it wasn't. I mean, I was like eleven, so then I weighed nothing. So, yeah. But you, you stood on the scales with like the local mayor, and who happened to be a fairly sizable bloke. Uh, and, I, and they basically, you stood on this scales and they stuck crates of orangina on the other side, you know, proper huge, great big scales. And, the, and then they had this, uh, then this, the mayor came on and obviously sort of, it took a few more crates of orangina. I ended up going, winning uh, 47 crates of orangina. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> and my parents were like, what on earth are we going to do? We can't take all of this away. Um, <laughs> and so we sent half of it back with um, the, the ESF guy that came with me to, that sort of looks after you when you're at these races representing yeah. the, the resort and, and the rest of it. He uh, he took back to the ESF and and, uh, and dished it out, out amongst those guys. So Amazing. That was, yeah, this crazy little thing. It was all sponsored by Ros and Muir. You just get Kitter. Brilliant race. I mean, yeah mega fun it was sort of a head-to-head style knockout thing it was wicked absolutely wicked they still do Um, those in resort don't they like in half term i'm sure they do what is it called the flesh and the something else yeah so those are are all the ones that that are i believe anyway if it's the same as what it used to be um that are like the resort run races but these were um across the whole of the French Alps. So you'd be, I was there representing Morzine and there'd be people there. I remember uh, there was another British guy, a guy called Freddie Clough, who the Cloughs, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. No. They are out of Merivale. Tony Clough is the dad and he owns them. Um, it's in Ski Into the Blue or Blue, something like that. Um, Hold age Chalet Company. Okay. And the Cloughs, and he, t- uh, Freddie's the same age as me. So we used to go and race. He would be racing for Merivale. And then there'd be kids for, from Orsier and, and Morgia, yeah, from Morzine yeah. and Courchevel and you know, dotted all around, around the Alps but it was great fun mm-hmm. um, but yes that was my early racing and then all of a sudden I was hooked on hooked on racing and had my sights set on going to the Olympics from when I was six years old apparently really? Um, yeah so I was I, like I said I used to ski with Kandahar yeah um, 
and Shirley Stevens, who used to run Kandahar at the time, um, and who I'm still in contact with, she she asked me apparently, not that I can remember what I, you know, what I wanted to do mm. with skiing, and I, and apparently I turned around and said I wanted to go to the Olympics, and that was age six, and and that was you know that was that amazing. Um, and so followed my dream, went on the England team, well, was British children's team. They went on the England team when I was part time, and then as soon as I left college. I went full time. Was part of this, for part of the British team that took me competing around the world and World Cup, Olympics, World Champs. Yeah, it's been pretty fun, pretty pretty fun uh, <laughs> life so far on the ski side. And wh- and and when did your switch? So you're you're known as downhill kind of guy. You yeah. don't like the turns. And anyone who listens to no. the to the ski racing podcast will will that know <laughs> you're not into turning that much. Which uh... wasted energy. It's all it is. Wasted energy. <laughs> well, I'm I'm the polar opposite of you, so I don't like going too fast. Uh, so I'm I, I like to turn, but um, I think there's a balance to be struck somewhere. But what what sent you? What sent you into the downhill side um, of it, or did you have to do everything? Oh, so I, I mean, I was a slalom skier really until I was, I think, 24-ish. Yeah, oh, well, that's a different chat because a lot, a lot of the top downhill guys used to be slalom skiers. Yeah, I think it's because, I think it's because when you're younger and, and sort of growing up on various teams, whatever, wherever you're from, you're, you know, regional teams and, and, and the likes, downhill and super G they take up so much pea space and you just don't get the opportunities to train. So mm-hmm. the vast majority is, is giant slalom because that's still, you know, the sort of base, the base skill set for, for any of the Alpine disciplines. So mm-hmm. you kind of, um, and I think it's just repetition. So I was a slalom skier. I was ranked uh, fourth of my age in the world in slalom when I was 21. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, I was raised, you know, I, I remember one of my last fizz slaloms that I did, I was at a race with Dave Riding. Right. And I, and, uh, and I'd scored my best ever slalom result, scored 20 points, um, which, which I was pretty pleased with. It was my lowest discipline yeah. at the time. Uh-huh. Um, Dave was a Dave was a few places behind me, which I'd never let him forget, because uh, because <laughs> now he absolutely obviously absolutely wiped the floor with me. So I've got to keep a few claims to fame, <laughs> and uh, and so so I did that race, scored my best result. The following weekend, the coaches decided that I was going to go and race a super G, a double super G, um, just round the corner, and yeah. because I was skiing all disciplines, I was like, "Yep, yeah, cool with me," and I scored. I think I scored about the same points-wise. I can't remember exactly, but from then on, I, I barely put slalom skis on again, apart from being combined. And I was a speed skier all of a sudden. Gone from one weekend from scoring my best slalom result to the following weekend scoring my best speed result. And that was me. And, and, and we, is skier. that because someone made that decision for you or pushed you in that direction? Or was it was that like... Was that you saying, no, I really, really like going fast and this is um, where I'm at? I kind of, I think at the time, I mean, I've always liked going fast. I've always, I've always been about speed from, from whatever, whatever I've been doing. It's always been about going fast. And so, and I've always had this, I don't know what the right word is, just love of watching downhill, you know, the big classics, the Vegas, yeah, yeah. the Kitzbühels, the sort of, the, 
macho probably isn't the right word, especially not anymore. But you know, you know the sort of the colossal events, the big ones yeah. that people look at in awe and just go, "Holy crap! How yeah. am I going to do that?" Yeah. And that's always been a bit of an attraction for me. I'm not sure what that says about me, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, and so I, I think I just I was an, a proper all rounder, did everything, and all of a sudden I just was putting that way. I'm quite a big bloke. I'm nearly six four. Right. Um, at the time, I at the time I was probably only eighty kilos, uh, and because I was still you know relatively young, and I found it quite hard to put on bulk as a youngster. Uh, yeah. You know, even into my early twenties, I, I I really struggled to put on any sort of size. Um, so I don't know. I think I guess the coaches just decided that looked at me and uh, sort of thought I had a downhill as build. Um, and at the time, Finley Mickle was was skiing really well and. You know, he's a sort of similar height to I am, sort of similar build-ish. Yeah. Um, and it sort of made sense that we, that I then start to look at, you know, becoming a downhiller and uh, and having access to, uh, you know, eventually I switched on to the Atomic brand, which Finley was on, which got, meant that we got to pull, well, I got to pull Finley's resources and it sort of mm. gave me access to better kit that I probably would have had on my own. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I guess the coaches ultimately decided, but I w- it wasn't sort of them going, "You have to do downhill." It was a case of we just started. I don't know, sort of steering gradually towards that. I doubt it was a full decision in terms of like you will, you are now a, a downhiller. Yeah, I wonder though. I, I wonder you going back to that issue of build. I think it's always the case. I look back to pictures of myself when I was like twenty one, and everyone's skinny when they're twenty one. Mm. like but uh, I wonder because a lot of the guys who are, who are well I don't know, is that right I was about to say a lot of the guys who are really doing it in downhill now are slightly older guys aren't they and I guess it's easy yeah, to put I, on that mass yeah, yeah some I think of the guys so. who are at the down, top are really big now yeah I think downhill I mean, uh, it's a generalisation and obviously there are exceptions to those to those generalisations but I think ultimately most downhillers are big dudes mm. and have and have that sort of dad strength, even though not many of them are dads. But you know what I mean? That mm. sort of strength that you get from just doing the same thing over and over again. Mm. With and and also speed races, downhills, and obviously super G's off the back of that because you ski on the same hills. Mm. Uh, it's all about um, learning the tracks and experience, and I think that's one of the things that that means that you peak so much later because in a downhill, it's all about terrain. Mm. Whereas obviously slalom and giant slalom to us, slalom is probably the, the one that matters least. If you look at the whole thing as a spectrum, in my opinion, that that what's happening, you know, in terms of what the piece is doing mm. has less of an effect on the outcome of the race as opposed to the course set. If you yeah. See what I mean. Would it be? Yeah, okay. No, I, I see what you mean. And a lot of the is it is it right to say that a lot of those downhill guys they're training for? They're not training so much for agility. I guess it, it would be pure strength and and then experience of track is what counts for those guys. Yeah, I think it's still ultimately a, the the speed races obviously are longer in terms of time and distance. Um, so you're. But at no point is it anything other than a sprint. It's, you don't push out the start gate of Vegan looking to hold back some energy for the bottom. Mm. It's still a sprint from top to bottom. So a lot of it is like muscular endurance and having the power um, to be able to turn massive, stiff skis on bulletproof ice that's harder than concrete. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> doing speeds of 80, 90, 100 miles an hour, best part of. Yeah, and, and I, I think macho probably is the right word, even though it seems to have disappeared from some of the, the, the usage of language um, or has apparently become a toxic word. But, you know, you, you, you can't get away from the fact that that is just brutal what those guys are doing. Mm, mm. It just is. And, and, you know, you either... You're either brave or you're not brave, right? You're macho or you're not macho. It's, uh... Yeah, I, yeah, I believe so. I mean, I think you're, you, the macho, the terminology macho obviously sounds like you're talking about a bloke, but I think you know it's, it's applicable from ladies to to, mm. to the men. You know, you're being macho, whether it's right, but basically you're just being gung ho and looking for speed mm. and sort of not really fussed about the consequences. Yeah. In reality. Yeah. Yeah. And that's hard to do, I suppose, if you've had a few crashes as well, a few big ones. Yeah. You know, as you must have had over the years, is then to just keep pushing out of the gate and, and keep looking for for that speed. That must be, that takes real bravery, you know? Yeah. But I also think that's, it's it makes your career very black and white because I think the minute you, the minute the fear comes, mm. you're, it's done. You know, well, that yeah. it's, it's black and white. Once, once you're standing in a start gate worrying about hurting yourself, then you then you're then you're out you may as well pack up and go home it's funny that because i'd I'd noticed a little well i don't know whether it is a correlation and you've been around that circuit more more often than i have so so that you'll you'll know but i wonder when family comes along for those guys yes and girls whether that goes you know that that sort of not really not really worried about uh, and and you know, you can almost predict, I'd say, probably who's going to be leaving the scene. Uh, well, Jessel Yandra just had a kid. I mean, right now he's, you know, well, he's sitting in, in, um, in, I assume he's in Norway, either that or he's in Innsbruck. But, right. he, you know, he's sitting inside, not putting his life on the line at the moment. And he's got a fresh, but I think, is she pregnant or is she, I'm not sure if, anyway, mm. he's about to be a dad if he's not already a dad. So right. all of a sudden, it'll be interesting to see whether he's still got that same psyche. I remember Finley Mickle, yeah. who I mentioned already, when he was competing, he just had his son, Jensen. Yeah. And he said that, and he said that all of a sudden he realized that he didn't want to put himself at risk because he had this family. And he said that, that was basically his wake up call. That, that, and that was his time to throw, you know, to, to throw the towel in or to, you know, to retire, however you want to put it. That that's, mm. he, it wasn't a case of him having enough Yeah. in terms of like, I found the fear, but he's just all of a sudden he's got responsibilities and he's not willing to, to put himself on the line again. It's, it's interesting that, isn't it? It, it does change you despite what, you know, it's really strange. You don't know it until you have a kid. It does change everything. And it's such a cliche to say, and I never thought that I would be that, but you know, I'm three years into this now and, and yeah, things do change and you start to think about stuff that you've never thought about before. Mm. You know, like there's a, there's a, you know, there's a new thing that's gone onto my list that I'm looking at in front of me, like my list of things that, that I'm trying to do in my life. And one of them says legacy. I never really thought about that before, but like now there's sort of someone coming behind you now, you know, that, that responsibility that comes with it is uh it, it, it hangs heavy i think if you think about these things yeah and, it's, a... and ultimately it's sport that ski racing is it, it's dangerous you, there's no getting away from it it's not you know it's not sprinting it's not mm. uh, playing football it's you know 
it's you you do put your life on the line i remember this it was a fascinating documentary and it's on youtube uh, i can't remember the name of it but it's right. uh, the bbc did it it's with michael johnson right um and they put it out just before the vancouver olympics in the build-up to vancouver olympics i think it was and mm-hmm. my now wife but my girlfriend at the time um she watched it and sort of not really knowing what i did mm. that well uh, watched this documentary and all of a sudden was a bit nervous what i was about to do but he talks about um it, it's brilliant you should watch it if you haven't mm. seen it it's brilliant oh, i'll hunt it. it down yeah um but it's uh he goes to watch the world championships of the, on the faster belvard in um Valdez there. Mm-hmm. I, ra- I was racing at it, and he was trying to st- watch on inspection. He was trying to stand uh, by the s- do inspection, basically. Yeah. And he's, uh, a, a, I think, it's probably fair to say, a very intermediate skier mm-hmm. at best. Um, <laughs> and he's just sweating profusely, trying to talk to camera, trying to hold his balance on the fan <laughs> on an injected piece, <laughs> and just having an absolute nightmare. It's trying to get into the psyche of a downhiller. Yeah. Uh, but one of the one of the sort of um lines that sort of stuck with me having seen it this this documentary is that the downhillers well skiers in general but more specifically downhillers put their life on the line every time they push out the start gate so the worst thing that could happen to me is i could tear my hamstring Mm, yeah 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 and that's and that's sort of i don't know it's a bit weird because you kind of i don't know you get that it's like a little ego boost that somebody thinks you're a bit crazy doing something <laughs> but at the same time it's like oh not that's not why you do it but you kind of like that people think that you maybe have a screw loose you're you're a little bit out there it's funny we were we were i don't want to mention this on every episode so i'm sorry listener but we we were chatting motorbikes before and you do get that sensation actually when you're out on your bike then you? you pull up you know next to a bunch of cars and you see the people in their little boxes and you're the guy like on a bike with a helmet and you're in the out you know you're in the open yeah like you're different you're different than everybody else yeah it's nice that um i had two points to make it just came out of your thing one i saw um uh jansrud once i went to norway at the end of the season with a mate of mine just for a ski to go and ski somewhere different and i saw jansrud i saw in fact the whole norwegian team were there so i saw svindal and he was like the big man at the time mm. i saw jansrud and i could not believe the size of that guy he's built like they're monsters he's absolutely enormous I've never seen a guy so big absolutely incredible and secondly yeah the faster Belvard I can see why he would Michael Johnson would have been freaked out on that I mean I was doing (laughs) my Basie 4 on that and then we do short turns down the fast it's reasonably steep I mean it's not steep it's not steep but I wouldn't want to wouldn't want to have to try and do it on ice injection that would be a whole different (laughs) different different world yeah I think the fast there's a, a few racetracks around the world where the winner is the person that survives with the fewest mistakes and the fast is certainly one of those it's not necessarily about who's quickest it's about who can make the least mistakes down something that's pretty gnarly and and the fast definitely fits that bill yeah it it felt a bit like that when i was trying to do my short (laughs) turns down there luckily it didn't make us do long turns down there i would have been really uh, crapping myself and they would have found the limits of my speed for sure um all right cool so so what can we let, let's jump from the end you know from the the, the downhill bit of your no 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 we didn't we, we missed a bit so the, your racing career has culminated in you realizing that dream which is going yeah. to the olympics 
Yeah. How, just to Vancouver, or where there was there was other ones? No, I went to. I just went to Vancouver. I missed. I'd switched to ski cross in 2013. Okay. Due to. Um, I had, a, I had a couple of injuries. I sort of fell out with the federation a little bit, and um, and switched to ski cross. And I missed going to the uh, Sochi games by a couple of tenths, nice. um, which was a pretty tough pill to swallow. But mm. I've built my career, ski racing career, on on times on black and white, yeah. and and ultimately I wasn't quick enough. And yeah, it was close, but that's what I like about sport. It's definitive, and for me, I didn't make it. So. Um, that was, yeah, tough, but at the same time, it was, it is, it was what it was, but yeah, mm. Vancouver, going to the games of, I don't know, I'm privileged to be in a position to live out parts, part of a dream. Like I, like I said, I always wanted to go to the Olympics. I always, that's always been the pinnacle of, of my sport and to be able to go there, pull on my bib, push out the start gate. And uh, you know that's that's something I'll be for you know have be able to look back on with fond memories forever. Mm. It was just mega. That's great. I, I mean, it's it's brilliant. There's not many people in life who get to realise their dream. I don't think that's yeah. one of the things you realise as you get older. Is that you know there's an awful lot of people going through life who 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 life isn't what they thought it was gonna be. Oh yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I, I know after my, my friend Steve says this sometimes, I go to the Arsenal with him and, um, you know, there's a lot of people getting really, really angry, you know, at the players and they're just like screaming, you know, screaming, just abuse. And, and my mate Steve just looks around and he goes like, can you imagine how like disappointed in the rest of his life that guy is? You know, that it's, this is his yeah. outlet, that he comes here and he just screams at these guys who don't care. And um, yeah. yeah, like it's, yeah, I mean, and it's great, right? You great, you get to realise your dream. But what happened? I'm I'm curious to know. I don't want to immediately put put a put a, put an endpoint after. But what happens after that? So you spend four more years like gearing up for Sochi. You don't quite miss. You don't quite get there. Yeah. Like what? What happens at the end of that dream? And the reason I say that is because I've got a certificate on my wall over here, which which sort of gives me the bit to get my own ski school going, which is always one of my big ambitions. But after I got that certificate, that, that, that final bit of paper that I needed, I just felt like I fell off a cliff, you know? Um, it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it is weird. I mean, yeah, I always planned to, you know, I planned for my ski racing career to, to keep going uh, until I was, you know, into my thirties, especially the downhill, and there's no reason why I still couldn't be competing today. Mm. Um, so it was always something that I was looking at longer term. I got unlucky with a few injuries, but I mean, you know, athletes have injuries again. That's part of sport. That's, that's mm. you know, yeah. part and parcel of the game. Um, so yeah, I got a couple, unlucky with a couple of injuries, and then when I missed Sochi, I, I, I don't know. I kind of fell out of love with with skiing. Okay. Um, because I don't know, I'm not really sure exactly why it was. I think it's just because I'd had a bit of a tough run, um, and just, and I wasn't sure what I wanted in terms of. I wasn't sure if I didn't enjoy skiing anymore, or if I didn't enjoy racing, or what it was in in general. Mm. And so, I went out and skied with James Bennett. I went out and stayed. I think this was just before Sochi. Well, that's enough um, to put anyone off of skiing. 
Pardon? It's enough to put anyone off of skiing, going ski with James Bennett. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, James. Uh, yeah. I've, had, I've had too many times skiing with that guy, so I should, <laughs> I should, I've got thick skin to him. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, I went and stayed with him and Craig mm-hmm. Robinson and um, and sort of just went on a skiing trip and stayed with those guys. And I, uh, I gave myself sort of four or five days of, of skiing to try and find out whether it was skiing that I didn't love anymore or whether it was just racing. Okay. And I realized that I, I just didn't love racing anymore. And the whole finances of, of British skiing, which I think seemingly are on the turn at the moment, mm. uh, but certainly through my whole career, I funded myself. Yeah. Um, and that was through working in the summer, um, bit of sponsorship, yeah. uh, and stuff and that's how i paid for my racing career and through my whole career i was fine with that and that was because that was what it was and i didn't mind working harder than everybody else or yeah. not everybody else but i didn't mind working harder than my racing peers from from the other nations mm-hmm. um because that was just what it was and that was what i had to do to be able to ski in a race and i loved it so i don't care yeah. um uh, but then towards the end of my career just as you know the last year or so i started to resent the fact that i had to work harder than everybody else and then i knew that that was i knew that that was the writing was on the wall Mm. um but to your point where what happened you know what you do afterwards and that was a that was a real struggle that because my whole my whole life without going too deep my whole Mm. life is had been about skiing had been about going fast Mm. and that's all that's that's everything. Every decision I've made since I was 10 years old was about how to be far, a faster ski racer. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then when that's not your focus anymore, all of a sudden I, I was talking to somebody about it the other day. Um, cause I, I'll get onto that in a second. Mm-hmm. I was talking about this to somebody the other day and he, uh, and, and I liken it. I always liken it to the fact that some, I'm in a room and somebody's turned out the lights and it's pitch black and I don't know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Because for my whole life, skiing has been my focus, and so it's always been directed in one one way. And then all of a sudden, life after skiing happens, and it's pitch black for the first time. Uh, yeah. And to try and find a direction, try and find <clears throat> where to go and where you sit and, and, and what you're going, what you're good at, mm. apart from not turning. Mm. <laughs> that was uh, that that's something that's that's tricky, and actually that's something that. Um, to my point, which I speak to this guy about, I, I don't think that there's enough of that around for athletes. So that's something that I'm turning my hand to now okay. because I want to be able to, I don't want anybody, any of these races to be in a position that I was when I retired. Yeah. Um, and, and the guy I was talking to is a guy called Ed Jackson, who is a, an ambassador for um, Restart, uh, a, a Project Restarts, a rugby charity about what to do when you finish your competitive rugby career. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like that, for me, it was a big distraction what was next mm. in terms of even while I was still racing. You know, you get slightly older, you get towards, you know, I was getting towards 30 and, ski, you know, what am I going to do when I stop ski racing? Because all my all my friends have been doing what they're doing after school they've been doing it since they were in their early 20s and i've got to do that in my early 30s yeah yeah yeah. and so 
and I feel like that that's we we kind of get let down a little bit in sport. People see the glamorous lifestyle, and mm. and you hear about these stories, and you look at you know your sporting greats. But for every sporting great, there's a hundred times that that amount mm. of sporting greats. You know, of people that didn't quite make it. Yeah, but have pumped their whole lives into doing it. Yeah, and, uh, uh, and then you know, and they're asked to do it. But but willingly they mm, do it. Mm. But they're asked to do it. You know, you need to be coming on every camp. You need to be skiing every, all, every single minute of of the day over the winter and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. and by no means do I have any problem with doing that because I don't at all. Yeah. But you, all of a sudden, when you're finished with you know when you're too slow or too injured or too whatever, yeah. and, and you get left behind, you're kind of you know, you're really left behind. Yeah, and it can cause actually you to to, to, to to really fall out in a big way with the sport. I know a few few um, oh, I want to say kids, but they're young adults now. But the the you know a few people that have been cut from the the, the Swiss pyramid, for example, you know, mm. and and the the cutoffs are brutal. You mm. know, cut by not you know by being out by one fist point. Yeah, you know, and then that's it. You're it's done. a brutal world. It's a brutal yeah. world, but it's br- you know, at the same time, it's a fantastic world. But yeah. it's brutal, mm. uh, and it's not all you know. It's not all winning races and glory days, and and you know, there's a lot of a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Mm. Um, but you know, that's I guess that's why the whip, the highs are so high because all of a sudden you're, you know, all of that hard work is still worth it. And that, again, that's the thing when, when the good times outweigh the bad, that's easy. But when the bad stuff starts to outweigh the good, that's where, again, you know, that that's sort of coming to an end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I, that's one of the things I'm quite passionate about now is, is trying to work out a way that a way that you, we can take that burden away somehow from athletes. You know, even the guys on the team at the moment, Dave is, probably the riding that is probably mm. the only one of the British team that's you know been able to to, to make some money out mm. of skiing mm. uh, and the rest of them are maybe making a little bit but not, certainly not something that's going to set them up in, in, for, for future mm. and I'm sure having you know having something in place behind the scenes is going to make them faster ski races yeah yeah for sure for sure what um what what does since we're going down that road, what does it look like then? Is it a sort of you're putting in place like some sort of support mechanism, or, or I don't know, was it, what is it like a, a charity or, or, or something like that? It's, to be to be totally honest, it's it's very it's in its total infancy, and I've been speaking to a few people about how to, to sort of try and work out how this how this um, looks, and I, and I don't really know how it looks because ultimately it comes down like anything to money. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, it just does, you know. Some somebody's time is worth money, so whether. But I feel like they, we we've got enough people interested in ski racing, British or mm. wherever, that are interested in ski racing that we can come, we can put some sort of mentoring program together. You can certainly summer load those mentoring programs for the for the athletes in mm. terms of ju- just having a little safety net of going. You know, when you finish ski racing. There's an internship for you at somewhere that you are interested in, you know, in terms of your future. 
yeah yeah you know, whether, sure. whether it's yeah. banking or property or, or i don't know whatever built being a builder or whatever mm. whatever you're passionate about we should be able there should be a process to be able to to, to find you a um a mentor in that area that that, that can guide you that's a really really great idea it exists in other sports right it might it must yeah. exist in football it must exist in rugby well, this is the thing, which is this charity that this this guy at Jackson I was talking to the other day, mm. um, and and but it's only recently that they've started to try and in the last sort of four or five years that that this has actually started to to yield some results because I think that in the world of of people's awareness for mental health it is heightened. Mm. I think that this is you know now a legitimate. You can now come to your governing body, whether that's skiing or football or rugby or tennis or whatever, mm-hmm. and say, "I'm concerned about this." And they can't. And they can't. And hopefully, they don't. Just tell you to shut up and get on with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'm sure would have happened years ago. Well, the world's changed a little bit in that respect. There's there's a lot of awareness of mental health now, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So your your journey then took you into ski cross now. You just told me that you were sick to death of it, the racing element. So, so how come you ended up in there? Was that just a, uh, a by accident, a, a side, a sort of tangent? Yeah, by accident. Um, so, I my my final year of Alpine. I can't remember what year it was. They seem to blend into one as I get older. Mm-hmm. Um, but my final year of Alpine racing, I picked up an ankle injury crashing at World Champs. Right. Um, that I kind of skied on when it was afterwards when it wasn't great and so I always had this niggle through my ankle and then so I trained the rest of that summer all okay and then I had another little crash towards the end of the summer my ankle started to give me a bit of jip and so I um I I then ended up taking quite a lot of the time off over the winter and I basically got kicked off the team um because I didn't really race over the winter mostly because i had this ankle injury mm. i then got so i got kicked off the team then i got ankle surgery in that summer post being dropped from mm-hmm. the team and then i realized that i want i was still hungry that sort of period of not racing for the year um had sort of brought the fire back and going i'm not done with this yet mm-hmm. but i i wasn't really sure how to tackle it because i was then on my own i was ranked like my points, I was ranked, I don't know, inside the top 100, I think about, ranked about 70th in the world in Super G. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was on my own. And yeah. so I I did a bit of skiing with James and Craig, James Bennett and Craig Robinson, mm. with their, what was JJC and now um, PDS. PDS. Yeah. Um, and they helped me out through the through some of the stuff in the, in the, spring, in the autumn, doing some skiing, and I was sort of bouncing around in my car trying to, find a race and i just started to get my speed back and i was racing there was a race around the corner from where i podiumed in europa cup um it, it, and it was, the race was in rajdab so i pitched up in rajdab ready to race all you know excited skiing was coming mm-hmm. the ski racing was coming back to me and um i they canceled the race was cancelled because we got a bucket load of snow and so the double super g that i was supposed to be doing yeah. was cancelled um so I was then, you know, properly gutted and I rang Craig up and I was about to jump in my car to come back to Mozing. Mm. 
and um and he was like look and this was craig i think just retired or was coming towards the end of his ski cross yeah. career that he was that he was doing he's like look there's a ski cross around the corner in mishev it's in it's tomorrow it starts tomorrow i think it was um why don't you do that and i was like yeah okay i guess <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I was in my car on my hands free calling the federation yeah. to say this is my plan I want to race in this World Cup ski cross it's tomorrow in Mejev can I have a fizz license please and can you enter me um, <laughs> thankfully they said yes um, and so I rocked up at Mejev no, knew nobody didn't have a coach, didn't have anything, no idea what the hell was going on. Um, I turned up, inspected this World Cup ski cross racetrack, uh, did the training run, scared myself, <laughs> did, did the race, crashed in quality, yeah. had the biggest grin on my face, and that was it. I was like, this sport is brilliant. <laughs> uh, and, so, and so I, was, so I quit Alpine and... Because I realised that Alpine was the dream of uh, of my Alpine career was sort of over. Because as a speed skier, you like I said to you at the beginning, mm. you, the the training opportunities are so few and far between, and therefore any opportunities that you do get, the big teams get them, or the teams get them. And it and if you want to ski with the team, you either need to you know come cap in hand and ask them to pity you and let you have a go, or you need to come with some serious money. Yeah, uh, and 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 pay to be able to use the lanes uh, and i kind of came up against the wall and, and and decided that that i w didn't want to just fight my way through an alpine world that sort of i felt sort of didn't want me mm -hmm. and so i was going to ski cross where i just finished with a you know bruised ego but brilliant had a brilliant time and that was it and it was like i i think ski crosses reminded me of being a kid racing yeah um because some of my best memories were being part of the British Ski Academy in Lazouche, mm. finishing training up in Lazouche and racing all of my mates from the bottom <laughs> of the race piece to the van. Yeah. Last person to the van has to do some stupid forfeit. Yeah. And that's what it was. And that and it was just that. It was and it was and that ski cross is skiing down four people at the same time, all fighting for a tiny patch of snow yeah. and sort of barging each other. And it was just it reminded me of being a kid and it put them and it really sort of reinvigorated my love of of skiing again properly. Now tell me, I see these guys up in, I don't see them in the ski season, but in Sasfe in the summer, they always build a ski cross up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I see those boys uh, doing the ski cross. They're all pretty big dudes um, and and girls as well. And they're on some pretty long skis, I've yeah, so noticed. You're, they're yeah, using, so you're on, the giant, you're on a giant slalom ski, which is like 190 or so. Yeah. So they're not, they're not necessarily the most agile but you need to try and find a mix between something that's agile but also something that's going to be stable because you are going you know you're not doing downhill speeds but you're doing 50 60 miles an hour over decent sized jumps well yeah this um, is what i'm seeing and i couldn't believe because the turning radius on some of those skis is is not that tight is it and some no. of the corners on those those tracks are pretty tight yeah. um and obviously you've got banking there which i guess helps to yeah, a certain that, degree. but you also got negative turns as well. So, and you, but the thing is, you've also got to get, 
you know, you've got to be able to move out of somebody's way or, move, you know, or move into a, a gap that's just appeared. So yeah. you have to muscle your way around. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> well, I've got, so in my, in my uh, quiver, quiver that, that I've got in my garage, I've, I've recently gone to a slightly shorter ski, but I have got a pair of 195, 35-meter radius, the old big spec yeah. guys, are the, yeah. the guys you're using like two, three years ago. Yeah, and the old face rag, yeah. Then they're not, that's not an agile ski at all. No, 100% not. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't want to turn. Or no. if you are trying to carve it, it it's, you're going light speed before, you, before it does start to work. Yeah, it takes, it takes a bit of speed and a bit of, bit of force from you and from gravity to get that ski doing anything that yeah. you want to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't believe you guys are skiing that down a down a yeah. ski cross. I've got to be honest. But it's stable, so that, and that's half the battle. <laughs> okay, I don't believe you. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what can we? Okay, so um, and that, and that was where you ended. Ski cross is kind of where. where yeah, you, so I I, I stopped ski I stopped ski cross when I fractured a couple of vertebrae. Oh, uh, my and, God. And that was sort of where I decided to, that I was kind of done. What um, were you doing to fracture? Well, no doubt. Well, I was racing ski cross, um, and I was in a Rosa in Switzerland, and it was a qualification run. And all these stories, um, crashing in ski cross, makes me sound like I was properly terrible. Um, <laughs> I wasn't that terrible, but I did, I did a bit of crashing. You go um, big or go home, Ed. That's, yeah, that's... exactly. <laughs> Um, I was. It was in the qualification run, and so what you're trying to do over all the terrain is, you know, is juice the backside of every piece of terrain. So I was juicing, that, you know, pressing down the backside of this roll, and it then leads into a kicker. Uh, and the light was pretty flat, and I just got my weight slightly wrong. I put, I tried to press down the backside of this roll slightly too long, which then put me onto my heels, uh, and then I went off a kicker with my bum on my bindings basically and pretty much did half a backflip um and i landed pretty heavily on the top of my back sort of base of my neck um which was not um, was not most comfortable um but i i don't know about you but whenever i whenever i've crashed and like i said i've done i've probably done more than my fair share of crashing Mm. uh, you kind of go through like a mental i always feel like it's like a sort of mental scan of your entire body trying to work out if anything's like really bad yes um but my mental scan i was upside down in a net with one ski on um and so and this poor course worker comes up to me and and uh, and and he goes how are you know are you okay are you okay and i said uh i I think so i'm not sure i'm not sure because obviously like you're just seconds from after crashing you're sort of still figuring it out yeah and i was like, I just need you to take off my ski i need you to take off and he's like i can't do that you just landed on your back you can't i can't touch you i said i think i'm okay i just need you to take off my ski can you please just take off my ski so i managed to convince him to take my ski off which meant i could sit turn around and sit on the snow yeah um and i can't i had a really bad pain in my hip i had a i'd rung my head pretty hard um i'd hurt my thumb and my back was a little bit sore but I was sort of, you know, I wasn't knocked out. I wasn't, uh, you know, concussed. I don't, I didn't think. Um, and so I was just sort of trying to, I was just sitting there. And the guy then turns to me and he's like, the doctor's on his way and they're bringing the blood wagon. And I said, there's absolutely no way I'm getting in a blood wagon. You're not, you're not putting me in a blood wagon. Um, 
And so he said, no, but I, just, I saw your crash. You should be going down in a blood wagon. I said, well, I'm not going in a blood wagon. And I've touched wood. I've never been in the blood wagon. And I have absolutely no interest in ever going in one of those things because they look like they cause more injuries than they do. Yeah, yeah. They don't use it um, so much in the World Cup anymore. Everyone goes helicopter now, don't they? Yeah, you never straight see chopper, anyone. Straight yeah. yeah, but the ski, ski cross isn't, you know, isn't the glitz and glamour of Alpine World Cup. It's, <laughs> uh, it's the lesser sibling. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so telling me that blood wagon was coming i was probably a couple hundred meters from the bottom mm. um and so i said i'm not doing it and i just i put my skis on and I, and I and i slid gingerly down to the bottom and i got to the bottom and uh my parents had come to watch this race <laughs> poor poor buggers <laughs> and um and uh <laughs> and my mum who's an ex-nurse a retired nurse and she goes Are you, you know what's going on you don't look like you don't look right and i said well i'm pretty sore and she was all right well we're going to the we're going down to the <laughs> down to the um, medical centre. So I went to the medical centre. The guy said, "You know what, what's hurting?" And I showed him everywhere that was hurting. And I got an X-ray of my neck and um, my hip. Uh, and he said, "Well, nothing's broken." He said, "Your neck's he says your neck's a bit wonky, but it could have been wonky from before." <laughs> um, so that's it. And I was like, "Oh, okay." Hmm. Um, and so that was it. I got I was. <laughs> left the medical center uh i then went back to my hotel limping because i couldn't really walk yeah my hip was so painful um but thank i'd driven out and but thankfully i had a friend who was on holiday in a resort around the corner um and he offered to drive me home right because i couldn't there's no way i could have driven home yeah and so i did that got home went to uh see a, a sports doc who then scanned me as opposed to just x-rayed me and told me i had a couple of fractured vertebrae oh, wow. <laughs> and i shouldn't really be moving um <laughs> and so he said i hope you've not really been doing too much and i said well i've been on the bike a couple of times because at this point it, like by the time i've got the scan you know how it works it yeah a little while uh and so by the time i've been on the static bike a few times and and i said well yeah i've been out on the bike a few times and he's like right well, well stop doing that and stop doing anything else because you've got a couple of healing fractures in your vertebrae so don't just stop doing everything um wow and that was and that was basically it and then i just i realized that i was you know that i i I didn't want to keep putting myself in these positions and i I stopped competing wow let let this be the podcast where it is known that that ed drake is the man who skied off uh (laughs) tried to ski off a broken back that's yeah oh it's all right What I don't think I would do it again. No, no, okay, <laughs> fair enough. As you can tell, um, it's had a, an amazing and uh, an interesting career, and uh, I love sort of hearing the story of kind of what his progression looked like, and uh, I'm always really, really interested to see what the backstory is for all of these high level skiers and people who have made it to the kind of the top levels. And there's always something in the background that, that sort of meant that they had really, really good and easy access to to skiing facilities or they had someone in their life that was really, you know, influential for them in terms of their skiing. Um, and, uh, and and so it also proves, you know, with, with Ed. Um, in this second half, we're going to go on uh, to talk about um, coaching in general. So being coached, and coaching um there's a whole bunch of sort of nuggets to do with uh 
to do with um, the Eurotest, which uh, he does some coaching for as well, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff ending with uh, with an interesting chat about, about how to run a yoga studio, for those of you that are interested in that. Um, so enjoy that uh, second half as it comes. Um, it looks like here in Switzerland we're, we're finally easing up from what must have been well, it's at least a month of kind of lockdown, as it were. Um, it hasn't snowed here. It's been one of the driest periods on records. It hasn't actually snowed since the week that, that they shut the lift. So, uh, so it's looking and feeling very, very summery. But I think that's the case all over Europe at the moment. But uh, I think Switzerland is sort of gradually easing its way out of this crisis. And I'm very much looking forward to, uh, to the crash being open. Uh, my daughter getting to interact with with other kids and uh, and maybe you know trying out these new golf clubs that I've bought. So uh, so enjoy the second half here. Um, I've got another great interview already in the uh, in the bag, um, which I've got to edit up, and that will come to you later on in May. Um, that's with a guy called Andy McCann. And for those of you that know Andy, will know that, that he's, there's going to be some absolute gold stuff in there. So um, enjoy this, and uh, I'll catch you on episode twenty one. Well, um, we'll come later to what you're up to these days, but I, I, I'm wondering, this this podcast is, is focused on ski instructors, but I know that there's a few recreational skiers kicking around as well that, that li- listen to this, but what, what can those people learn technically from downhill skiers, would you say? Um, I would say... I would say a downhiller or a ski racer in general but certainly towards the faster end of it, super G and downhill, I think ability to read terrain is probably second to none. Um, and being able to picture, picture a route and seeing, and seeing how you're going to get down and reading stuff whilst you're moving. Mm. I think that's, that's what that's going fast and, and, and sort of working these big turns and these big angles and, and, and reading terrain and i think that's that's one of the big things that that i think skiing fast only when it's safe <laughs> yeah. don't need to ch- t- jump over any rolls and find somebody sitting on the other side of it well yes um, there is that the, yeah i mean that that's one of the things funnily enough when we're, we're coaching kids for for gs it's one of the little things that i say to them before i i put in the gate for the nervous ones certainly i'll be like well as a kid you know is there is there anywhere else apart from this place where you can go as fast as you want you know mm. like there's no one here telling you what to do so you can choose how fast you go down this racetrack if you want to go fast you go fast go for yeah. it you know it's just a, it's, it's a controlled environment in that way i think it's a it's a great thing for kids in, in oh, terms yeah. of the gs racing that they're doing oh, yeah but the um but but is that also in terms of the inspection because in downhill right you get you get to inspect it I suppose you get to training race it a couple of times as well, don't you? Yeah, you go train. You get minimum. So the rules are you have to you have to be able to start one training run right. before you're allowed to race a World Cup. So you could, if you were mental, push out the start gate, take your skis off, and, yeah. and that would count. Oh, but wow. there is there is minimum one training run before yeah. racing a World Cup. So that you so that you do get to obviously ski mm. beforehand. So you get to inspect and ski it and then race it um where super g you don't get your training runs but it's all about you know you still get you're going fast but it's which is what i think i quite like the super g because i like that sort of 
I, I tended to be able to read core sets quite well. So that was one of the things that I quite enjoyed about Super G, which I think gave me a bit of an edge um, over quite a few of my competitors was that I was able to read terrain and read core sets quite well. How did you find um, the the reading terrain from a, you know in, in inspection you're, you're you're looking right you're going pretty slow yeah. slipping it or whatever like how does that how do you make that transition in your head between looking at something statically and then imagining what it's going to be like when you're you're at, you know when you're seventy going, miles an hour or whatever. you know full speed yeah. full speed um, a lot of it is experience a lot of it is you know trial and error when you're when you're young. But yeah. also, I think it's, you know, you can, the courses are set to be skied on, on the equipment. So you can, obviously, the, the radiuses and stuff that you've, that you've got. So you kind of get that um, ability to, like, read stuff. But also, it's about, you know, you, you can use all the, I used to use it quite a lot in terms of direction over rolls. You'd pick a point on the other side of the valley or, you know, a, a pylon or something, mm-hmm. anything that you can find over the roll to make sure to help that you're directed in the right way. Yeah. So you've got a gate on a blind roll. So you, you know roughly where your angle is, where you're supposed to be hitting that pointing across at the valley on the other side, or, you know, hit, making sure you hit that's where the, uh, where that banner is or whatever, or the, or the snow fence or whatever. And that sort of little tricks of being able to, to help make sure that you're pointing where you want to be pointing. Cause obviously once you go over that roll, when you're doing super G or downhill, when you're doing, you know, those sort of speeds, mm. You haven't, you haven't got a chance to to really make any corrections. <laughs> no, no, for sure. And you see that often, don't you? See guys like ending up in the net or, or uh, yeah. in the next game. Yeah, you only stop. You only stop two places on a on a speed race, and it's either in the finish area or in a net. <laughs> God, <laughs> <So that's, laughs> that blows you two options: finish or the nets. It's in. It's a, actually there. Is, there might be a parallel there. I don't know how far ahead you look when you're you're racing but i know that when when you're let's say you're doing a sort of demonstration run of short turns or something normally mm. you'll pick a fix you won't look at the the tips of your skis and it's often something that is it's weird it's something that we see quite often from british british ski instructors it's something that the the the, the, that the federation like produces somehow i don't know why but they end up looking at their skis all the time and actually where you'd want to be looking at if you're you know you'd say you're doing a run of shorts or whatever you'd want to be looking at a sort of a point much more fixed down the hill yeah. rather than rather than kind of just in front of you. And you obviously you can't do that in downhill either. You can't be looking, you know, a few feet in front of you. No, I think you, ch- I, I think you sort of, you sort of scan, don't you? I, I feel like when you're, when you're turning around gates, you've got to look at the key, the key stress points on the course, which is by the gate. So you have a little scan down there to make sure there's no holes Hmm. Or you know you're not skiing through some bumps, and most of the time you'll know those are coming anyway because if you help, you'll have course reports from coaches and staff and stuff that you know you know over this roll through this section, watch out. You know there's a couple of bumpy turns that have started to form or whatever, or softer snow, or, you know, hmm. this sort of stuff. So you you kind of scan, but you're, you're ultimately looking a long way down the hill. Yeah, I, I know what you mean in terms of people looking down at their skis. I think the minute you're caught up with looking at your skis, you kind of um, I don't know you. you you, there's too much going on in your head, I think, when you start looking at your skis. You don't need to be, you know, by all means, have a scan down if you're looking at where your tips are in terms of, you know, correlation from tip to tip or, mm. or whatever. But ultimately, you've got to be, uh, I don't know, it's sort of more of an autonomy in terms of, like, what's happening under your feet is yeah. happening under your feet. and you, you need to be concentrating on, on what's coming towards you as opposed to what you're actually doing. 
It's something that the Swiss, the Swiss ski instructors, I mean, old bosses were bemused by this. It's like, why do you, why do you British guys always look at your feet? And I think it's just a, a um, like a, like a, uh, like a habit thing that you get if you if you haven't been brought up on snow. If you've been brought up on snow ever since ever, you're not really worried about what your well, skis are doing because net. you know, maybe yeah, safety net. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Okay. Um, can we move on slightly to the the sort of the athlete coach relationship? Because I think a, a lot of our listeners would be would be interested in 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 this. And we talked a little bit off air about sort of coaching um, yourself, and I know you do a little mm-hmm. bit of it. Initially, yeah. I think I'd like to talk to you about your relationship to your coaches as you were as an athlete. Um, yeah, and 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 you know. What were the? Can you remember any like standout stuff from an athlete perspective that coaches did for you, or, or relationships that you had with coaches? I I remember. I think I remember most of my coaches, even from when I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the by far the best thing that a coach has ever done to me. But obviously, every person learns differently. But was was believe in me. And I think that sounds strange because they're about, you know, supposed to be helping you technically. But actually, for me, it was the buy-in from a coach to mm. what I was doing. But then obviously, ultimately changing what I was doing. But yeah. Um, yeah. Um, one of my favorite coaches is a guy called Wolfgang Grabner. And I hated him at the same time. Yeah. So he... he he was an Austrian guy and he was my first coach when I joined the British team mm-hmm. and it was his first job in the UK as a, as a British coach away from Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, and he now works for World Cup, the World Cup women's team for Austria. Okay. Um, and he was brutal, absolutely uncompromising, brutal, fully, dictator you know mm-hmm. it, it was my way the highway you guys aren't good enough you're not skiing quick enough you're not doing this right da, 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 all of this sort of stuff and i remember that first year we had him or the first winter i had him i hated the guy yeah and he uh, and for me and i think but at the same time he was learning how we as a team because at that point there were four of us five of us on the team including myself mm-hmm. um and it was his first time working with Brits and he'd come from a background of working with Austrian Austrians where there's a conveyor belt of talent. And if you, if you break a couple on the way, it doesn't really matter because you've got, you know, 20 looking to fill these two spaces of athletes you've just broken. Yeah. Um, and Britain doesn't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. So I think he, he changed the way that he taught in terms of he kind of became a little bit more, I don't know, curvy in terms, less sort of edgy in terms yeah. of what he was doing. He sort of became a little bit nicer, if that makes any sense. Uh, and at the same time, we became a little bit more hardened to what it was. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, that was my first real uh, um, experience of that style of coaching. Through most of the coaches that I'd had previously, had been, you know, a little bit. Nicer isn't Fluffy. necessarily the right word. Yeah, I can't yeah. think of the right, 
but so in terms they've been you know been a bit more collaborative uh, and talking about stuff uh, and and actually i needed that change but we both but both from both sides we'd learned how to deal with it and he's he became the, that second year mm. he has become my one of my favorite coaches of all time uh, and a guy that i still speak to through social media and every so every so often if i get out to the to world cup or whatever when i'm commentating i can go and speak to him and we can have a beer and yeah. um and catch up and and sort of catch up and reminisce about the good times as well as the shit times yeah <laughs> i think i think that conveyor belt thing is is interesting isn't it because i know a bunch of guys that have been you know training for things like Eurotest or whatever and they've been yeah. trained by um I think it's cultural. I think they've been trained by, say, French guys, say. And a French guy sometimes, I'm not, you know, I'm generalizing, but I've heard that, you know, you'll ski down and the guy will go, it'll give you some sort of feedback, which might be as simple as, that was crap, go around again. Or it might be something like, you need to push more. And that'll be it. And like, off you go. And... Your average, I think, this is, is what I think, uh, yeah, based on, on you know the amount of time that I've spent with British guys training, training me, is that they're a bit more, like you say, they're a bit softer, they're a bit more involved, they're a bit more sort of sensitive to, to, yeah, and a bit more kind of willing to go in depth with their explanations. Yeah, I've, I've done a bit of uh, Euro <laughs> test coaching and... It's in. It's quite interesting. From I've done. I've, I've done a bit of coaching, like we said before we came on air. I, I coaching is not where I see my long term future. So I do a bit, but I don't do a lot. Um, so I dip in and out of it as and when the right situation comes up. And so I've done a bit of Euro coaching, um, and so it's interesting seeing the difference between the athletes in terms of racing athletes and your what not have what have to be athletes in terms of now they the, the guys doing their euro test yeah um and so what difference really do in- you see you're gonna to have to explain that because there's gonna be all sorts of people going is that me is that not me yeah <laughs> um, no, 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 the, the euro test candidates are looking for a, a golden nugget of information that's going to make them quick enough to pass um which as an athlete in terms of racing athlete you're not looking for a golden nugget you're looking for a very increment small incremental improvement in terms of you know getting to where you want to be and i think the the reason that euro test stuff i think from my personal opinion is that uh the the, the reason that a lot of people struggle with it or or are craving attention on every single run about every single turn mm. is the fact that they feel like they're looking for one nugget that it's going to make the difference between them being too slow and being fast enough yeah and and in reality it ta- it takes such a long time to make changes and it's brutal when the when when you it means so much because it's like mm. people's livelihoods, it's people's cold yeah. hard cash that they're yeah. putting on the line to try and to pass their pass the Euro test. Mm. Uh, and so you understand, you really understand them trying to get every single piece of information. But ultimately, a lot of it is about time and the fact that 
you're anybody going for the euro test is trying to do it in a quicker time as possible mm. means that um they crave information at every turn where actually you can't yeah that's maybe. not how you improve you yeah. need to just go yeah. and do and make changes you can't just you know you can't just make changes because because of the nature of ski racing with every turn being different every snow yeah. section being different it means that you can't just ski one way you have to be adaptable which means that it's not one piece of information that's going to be your ticket it's no. a whole load of building blocks that make you quick enough to pass and, and that, that unfortunately yeah. takes time and therefore costs money well i think the racer instinctively understands that as well doesn't he that he understands that it's just a question of graft and time yeah. because he's in ski club or you know let's say yeah. you've got a little grom who's who kind of joined ski club at age six or whatever and he just you know that's his life then for yeah. quite a long time you know wednesday afternoon oh, yeah. saturday sunday racing yeah, I mean, gates snapping plastic yeah i mean we've seen it from uh, any of the the people that i know that have gone through their basie from a racing standpoint i feel like race and i, I don't know I'm sure if this is 100 percent true or not because i only see it from a racer standpoint because that's who i was mm. um but i feel like the collective of people going through the basie system or the iz system whichever system you're going through but mm. basically that system sees races as you know when they get their exemptions from this that and the other they see it as a shortcut but in reality any racer <laughs> that goes through any of this stuff yeah. has pumped in uh, i don't know five six seven times the amount of hours that anybody else has put in on snow mm-hmm. and yeah. and that's and that's why for me racers uh, it's good that racers do get exemptions from some stuff because it's just the nature of it. You know, you Eurotest stuff that I, I don't have to pass my Eurotest because I've skied to a low enough point and now I open for Eurotest anyway. Mm-hmm. But but it's, that's that's not a gimme because I was quick at ski racing. That's a gimme because I have skied for 25 years of trying to go fast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, well, in addition, when you go up on the glaciers in the summer, right, and you see all these little racer groms that are they're doing their thing, and mm. some of them are really young, you know, they're skiing around with those massive bags. That's always one of the funniest things that you see. That they could fit in. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. And then they're skiing around, you know, they carry all their own gear, carry, you know, struggling along with two pairs of skis. And then when the course condition, you know, if it's too soft, they're out skiing moguls, they're making rut lines, they're doing this, that, and yeah. the other. It's no wonder... That, you know, if they pop out of their system and then go and decide to do whatever, you know, be it CSIA, PSIA, Basie, whatever, it's no wonder they come with an accomplished set of skills. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like we, yeah. we had last year, um, last year a girl come work for us, um, Annabelle, who used to race Ski Valet, quite a decent level. Hi, Annabelle, if you're listening. Um, amazing skier. Just turned up. Anything you asked her to do, she could do. And all she wanted to do was come and, you know, do some work on weekends and stuff like that. But because she'd had that grounding, she's the best skier by miles of any of us. I think, you know, this whole, <clears throat> the whole Eurotest stuff, I, I, you know, take my hat off to, to these guys that are going for the Eurotest and passing the Eurotest that don't come from a racing background because yeah. the level is tough. Yeah. It's a, it's a good level mm-hmm. and it's, 
you know, it's one of the reasons why instructors get to be, you know, get to be paid well is because it's a tough level. Not everybody can do it. So at the same time as it being a thorn, a massive thorn in people's sides, it's also, you know, part of a golden ticket if that's what you want to do. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like, uh, but it's a serious level and it's putting, it's, you know, you have to be dedicated. You have to become an athlete and you have to, you know, be able to tune your stuff properly. It's like really good for dedication. It's really good for like, I don't know, adaptability. I think it's, it's, it's a serious level. And I hold, you know, I turn my hat off to people that do that, that and manage to pass it who don't come from a racing background. Cause it's, uh, yeah. it's a, it's a serious skill. What about, um, I'm going to jump back onto a, a different, well, not a different, the same topic, but um, jump you back a little bit. So in terms of coaching, like you're around the World Cup circuit a fair bit. You go, you're go. you not always in a studio commentating on these things. Sometimes you're there. And how do you, what do you see, or when you were around the circuit at the highest levels, what are the relationships between the coaches and the athletes look like? Because they're often one-to-one then, aren't they? Um yeah ish i mean it depends you've obviously got the, the bigger teams have big coaching staff you know the big coaching team so yeah the, the athlete coach ratio is pretty good mm. um but it's i don't know you it's it's weird because you're it's a family as well as a working environment as well as a, a sporting working environment so it's i think the coach athlete ratio i think there's a lot of respect that goes both ways um and because you're you know as an athlete you're putting your again we talk about risking your life you put your life in the hands of your of the coaches and of the of the ability of, of those around you when you're talking about lines when you're talking about ski technique when you're talking about uh, tactics for a certain section you're putting your life in somebody else's hands so um it's a it's a close relationship and they and the coaches live and breathe every turn, and I and I do it from a you know a lower level in terms of the little bits of coaching that I do. Yeah. Um, I live and breathe every turn with anybody that I'm coaching from Eurotest to to kids racing. Mm. Okay, okay, um, cool. Uh, so what I was going to say to you, I was going to say to you next. What I, what I wanted to touch on before we kind of touch into um, into into kind of what you what you're up to next or these days was was from a technical standpoint. So your let's say you're you're opening a Eurotest. Although you said to me you don't like turning anymore. You know, there's fifty gates on there. What? That's about, about forty nine too many. <laughs> <laughs> and you know you're strapping on some relatively short boards. What? <laughs> what? Do you have a technical focus that you you think about either when you're warming up for that or when you're in the gates? Like, are you? We had a we had an episode like two or three episodes ago from a guy um, who coached uh, who coaches under under I think it's under fourteen um, in Sun Valley in the US, and his thing was all about be trying to be on top of the boot at the top of the turn. And I've heard you talk about that on the the, the podcast before. Mm-hmm. about you know he who stays on top of the boot the longest wins that kind of stuff and did, did you have that kind of personal focus in your in your um in your own skiing with regards to racing my 
one of my breakthrough moments, and I think lots of skiers for you know for recreational skiers to to World Cup skiers will ha have a sort of um, an epiphany moment where something you just get something and mm. it makes a huge difference. And for some people, you know, it's going to be whatever leaning further forward is going to be skiing with one hand above their head makes a better turn on their left foot, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and mine was, I always struggled with flexing my ankles. Um, and so a lot of times, like you say, I talk about skiing with a closed ankle. And for me, that's just about making sure that ankle angle is, is far enough forward in terms of um, your, if you look at it as a snapshot from a side on picture, you've got your knees in front of your toes and your shoulders in front of your knees. So you're skiing with this sort of back angle, yeah. uh, sort of lean forward angle. And that, that was what I was trying to do. But my actual moment that, that sort of changed the way I skied was I started and I still do it today. Every single time I put skis on, and, but now I do it without thinking about it. I tiptoe in my transitions inside oh, my boot. Okay. So, so you actively do you do you, are you talking about actively kind of pulling the skis back underneath you in effect? No. So I I, I literally try to tiptoe in my ski boots. So now if, let's say you're in a snug one fifty flex pair of Atomics. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So. Uh, um, that's not going to you're not actually physically going to be able to do that because you won't have any movement in upward movement no, in your ankle no but what it does do is if by tiptoeing so the, the thing why and whenever I do any sort of coaching I always talk about this because one of my the, because it made, had such a huge effect on my skiing mm. I I try to inflict it on everybody else when I'm coaching <laughs> I um, think we all do that some, to a certain extent to some people it, they, they like it. For some people, I'm sure they just rather take their boots off and throw them at me. Yeah. Um, but for, for me, what it does is it, it forces you into a good position without you realizing it. Uh, and for me, the coaching that I do, that's what I try to do. I try to trick people into being in the right position by doing stuff that they know how to do. So if you're in a slightly back position, mm. you're backside slightly too low which a lot of us get into very easily mm. um but if you're if your weight's a little back and and you stand you could do it in your trainers you can stand there with your you know in a sort of ski position with your butt a bit too far back and you're told to tiptoe you naturally bring your backside forward mm -hmm. and you bring everything forward and you come into this great angulated position with your shoulders in front of your knees and your knees in front of your toes because you're into this tiptoe position. Um, and so that was something that made such a big difference to me because it therefore, because my transitions became better, it meant that the start of my turn, which is the most important part of any turn, mm -hmm. is that initiation phase. And so by bringing my hips through and getting better positioning in my transition it meant that i could then flex my ankles from a better position an easier position to be able to flex the boot and therefore my pickup was so much more powerful and so much more stable from the get-go and therefore you know as a knock-on effect as everything does within skiing it meant that my release phase of my turn was way cleaner because i'd done hard work earlier in the turn mm. and so that was something that i i found I, I got so much 
so much of a good feeling from and and that's what i try and yeah one of the one of the things i try and trick people into into being better at their transitions and i think transitions are such a a, a an easy part of the turn to make changes because there is minimal force and so why wouldn't you make a big effort in some in a in a part of the turn where not much is coming back towards you that you know there's not a lot of feedback going through the feet it's not like you're trying to make turn changes in a turn mm. you're trying to basically give yourself put yourself in the best position to start your turn where when it's at its easiest to get into that good position yeah yeah that, if you if you see what I'm, no i do i do see what you mean and, and there is no coincidence you know in the in the uh, a lot of the race race coaches all talk about the same thing right it's being being in a good place at the top of the turn mm. and and i think that relates into recreational skiing as well and i also i often talk not not on such a maybe not in such an extreme way but i you know the the early season sessions that i always do with my clients are always sort of transition balanced related because the 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 habit at the start of the season is to rush that rush that Mm. area you rush that area and you wash the tail of the ski and you, you you then you you arrive in a big pressure dump at the end of the turn yeah. Now, your recreational skier is using the ski in a different way to the way that you would be because you're trying to generate speed out of the turn. Yeah, but also you're trying to, and that's the thing when I talk to, because I do a bit of coaching to adults who aren't who aren't necessarily wanting to go faster. Mm. But for me, it's it's efficient, and I'm yes. all about efficiency. Yeah, yeah. all about efficiency. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, and so by being in a in a better position at the start of the turn means you don't have to work as hard in the turn so yes yes for yes. me it was about going faster but ultimately it means that you can ski for longer because you're in a better but you're not fighting look how hard it is to stand in a squat position mm. for two minutes than it is to stand in a more forward ski related position it's it's yeah. black and white it's so for, like it's not necessarily you know that's the sort of correlation i try to show people when i'm when I'm working with skiers as opposed to racers, that yes, I came, I came at it from a, a speed perspective, mm-hmm. but ultimately it's it's applicable in terms of energy saving positions. Well, if there's um, if there's any of my existing clients listening, they'll, they'll probably just say, oh, you sound exactly like what Dave says at the start of the season, which is, <laughs> which is exactly that. Why would you, why'd you add in any undue effort into your skiing if you don't need to do it? You know, if you if you get your balance point right at the top of the turn, the ski works all the way around the curve. It's just physics, right? That less pressure yeah. will arrive at the end of the turn. Therefore, it's going to be easier to ski, and you're going to be just cruising around the mountain as you know, cruising around the mountain in a better way than you would be trying to fight the mountain all the time. Yeah, you take you know, you take your small your small wins, and by moving properly in a point of the turn where the least forces are acting on you, mm. it just means the rest of the turns were easier, right? So, mm. yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. One of the other ones that I think is quite important, and it probably applies actually to races in, in addition, one thing that, that really um, worked for me or has an understanding that has worked for me is, is, is the amount that you steer the ski, as you, mm-hmm. whether, whether you're in a calf situation or a skidding situation, is... is the amount I suppose you could almost talk talk about it as as like a a finishing off of the turn. 
Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't finish off the turns enough, but it actually it's a sort of, for me, it looks a little bit like if you were to look down, which I'm trying not to do, um, would be that your skis are still continuing along the, their arc as you're going across them and trying to balance above them. And I think from, uh, uh, I totally agree. And I found myself um, quite frustrated. It'll be interesting to hear what you think and actually potentially interesting to hear what, what the listeners think, depending on how abusive they are. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I find myself talking a lot to skiers that I teach about where they're facing in terms of their body positioning. And I, in terms of finishing off your turn, like you just talked about there, so you have to, and I'm a huge believer in it, and it of facing where you're going. And this old, if you're doing slalom turns, short radius, very short, snappy turns, then you face the bottom of the hill. But the minute you turn anything more across the hill, Mm. you have to face where you're going because you one the traverse section is important Mm -hmm. but also if you if you are facing the bottom of the hill and and you guys at home listening can stand up and try this if you're imagine you're in a traverse section of the turn to the the bottom of your whatever wall you're facing Mm. so if you're if you're facing where your skis are going how easy it is to move your knees but if you start to try and twist your body to be facing down the hill whilst your feet are facing across the hill, mm. how difficult it is to actually move your knees and move your body to weight to the inside. It, you end up blocking yourself massively yeah. by trying to square yourself to the bottom of the hill because you become in this big split. Your, your inside foot is further forward. Your, back, your outside foot is, gets blocked by your inside leg. And all you can then do is drop the hip massively and you just become a passenger around the turn as opposed to be able to impart force into the ski. Mm. So by people getting away from this old school style of skiing, which is facing bottom of the hill, where you used to have to like really muscle the heel to come around, mm. thanks to carving skis, we don't have to muscle the heel to come around anymore. You could, you know, if you want to, you could fully arc it and it will come round. But if you want to bring in some rotation, then the ski comes around much easier than it used to anyway because of the length of the thing. Yeah. Uh, and so by following where you're going, you you free up knee movement, you free up hip movement. And I think that whole finishing off the turn like you were talking about earlier yeah. is so much easier with that through that traverse section if you don't get caught up with trying to keep your chest facing towards the bottom of the hill. I don't think anyone does that in a longer term turn anymore, do they? I suppose you might see that with some people that 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 grew up on a sort of longer, older, straight ski. But a modern I ski, a you. I, 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 yeah? I see a lot of people still when I talking to, talking about it to adults. Maybe it's less kids, but talking about it to adults, I, I, a lot of people I find are still. I was told to be facing the bottom of the hill, and then we're like, oh, "Well, yeah, maybe in 1970." Yeah, but, and yeah. I think exactly. Yeah, and I think, and I think a lot of people still you know listen to or think back to when they were taught and i guess maybe that's a case of you know some people being taught how to do something then coming away from lessons and then coming back to where the coaching or, or instructing or whatever and all of a sudden they're like yeah oh wait a minute everything's changed but i think that's a really important message of people just mm. that's one of my huge bugbears is 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 that sort of facing the bottom of the hill anymore 
Yeah. It just creates so many issues. Oh, it, it certainly does. And, and especially with, you know, essentially parabolic skis or whatever, you know, carved skis or curved edge skis, you can't really afford to be anything other than, you know, square to, direct, square to, direct, yeah, square to the ski, right? You know, in, in, the, in transition. Uh, you know, after what, whatever you do after that, after transition as you kind of regain your balance now you can use kind of positive rotation into the turn if you want you can use a counter rotation depending on what you're trying to do but at point of transition everything does seem to work better if you're square to the ski that's for sure yes yes i mean we, we agree okay cool let's um let's finish it well i'm conscious i've got you on the phone for ages and, and um i can smell my dinner so coming out else. No, <laughs> no, i've got a I'm, I'm go anyway. i've got a daughter to put to bed at some point but what, what are you um what are you up to these days then so you said that you didn't see you do a bit of coaching now and then but i see you much more as ed drake the media guy um john john fellow uh his natural successor but where um uh where where, where what are you up to these days also, yeah, I sort of, I don't know, I found me a, a quite, it took me a while to find my feet um, post-racing, but yeah, the media side of stuff I really enjoy with doing the commentary with Nick and doing, um, did a bit of uh, stuff for the BBC for the last Olympics and the podcast and um, I, can't, I, I like, I like the fit of, you know, I, I'm hugely passionate about skiing mm. and, uh, and, and racing specifically, I guess, but, um, and so the media stuff kind of fit really nicely. Um, mm. but at the same time, it's hard cause obviously that's only a, a, a winter, a winter gig, right? Yes, you're well, <laughs> so, yes. uh, I've been, I, I've been working hard to try and push outside my winter sport niche when it comes to my commentating. So I've done a bit of stuff for athletics, um, wow. okay. and that sort of stuff. So that's what I'm trying to do, but also, um, with alongside a little bit of coaching i do my wife owns a yoga studio oh, so wow. i general dog's body for that uh, just odds and sods how, with the studio oh so. that's cool that's really yeah. nice. how is the yoga business i mean there's a lot of competition in that that world yeah it's good i mean it's like i guess it's a little bit like instructing um it's if you if you're if you are good or you've got good staff, then people will find you. Mm. I think there's a lot of people in the yoga world, not, not that I'm a teacher, but I get to see quite a lot of it. There's a lot of jokers out there who who have done minimal training and all of a sudden picture themselves as pitch themselves as some sort of guru and, and it's about yeah. trying to trying to make sure that you don't uh, get sort of caught up in people that aren't as good as that as they sort of appear to be. There's a lot of you know. I think that's the thing with social media. You get <laughs> you can you can get a bit of a false sense of of, yeah. of of how good somebody is at something based on what you get to see on social media. Yes. Um, and so uh, yeah, it's a and I think thankfully for skiing, correct me if I'm wrong. It's the fact that that it's quite strict in terms of your qualifications to, to, to your teaching. Mm. Whereas I think yoga is a little bit further behind that in terms of, yes, there are some qualifications, but it's not quite as strict in terms of, you know, the amount of hours you need to teach before you can go to be mm. qualified and yeah, yeah. the amount of 
the amount of hours of qualification you know you can do thousand hour qualifications you could do 200 hour qualifications you know and you're essentially allowed to teach the same people yeah um and and so that's that's a sort of tricky tricky area but i think i, I guess being uh, from my side on the external because like i said i don't really do an awful lot of of teaching that it seems that it's a slightly more regulated industry yeah yeah there is and and, and i think the quality will shine you know shines through in the end anyway yes. um you know we have we have a, a fairly decent reputation amongst our particular client niche um i'd like to think and um you, you know if you stick at that long enough you build yourself a nice reputation um yeah that's one of the ways of doing it you know you, you stick at anything for long enough and uh and and you're there it's it's kind of how you take it on and how you as long as you don't lose the core value that made you good in the first place i think is the key there's a hard balance but i think you're absolutely right yeah and that's that's kind of in terms of our own ski or the ski school here is you know, sort of struggling not struggling really it's actually gone really well this year but um it's like how do you take a ski school that was all essentially about dave burrows and his local reputation and mm-hmm. then take it to become less about you how do you do that how do you manage that transition so, I and imagine your wife would have the same thing right yeah, yeah, that's the ultimate when you're trying to build something because there's only one of you. There's and there's only, only so many hours in so, the day, right? So if all yeah, you do so, is sell your time for money, it's you, you're limiting yourself in essence. But I think it, you, that it's all about trying to find the right people, the, being a good people reader and trying yeah. to find somebody that has the same values as, as you in terms of, and I think that's, you know, we see that in the yoga business and, and anything like that and i'm sure loads of listeners will know that until when they're starting to run teams or when they run you know groups of people that, that you can only do so much but i, I was about to say i was going to tell a story about this lady who in, who uh, started the huffington post and um, i can't remember the exact word she said so i'll, I'll try and willy it but it's, it was a really interesting article she was on a podcast a few months ago mm-hmm. uh, and it was saying something like don't get caught up in thinking that nobody can do it as good as you. People won't do it like you, mm. but people can do it as good as you. Mm. Mm. And being able to read and being able to see the difference between doing it as well as you, but in a different way, and not doing it necessarily the way that you think it should be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, I think that was uh, that and something that stuck with me because I think it's it's very true. Like I often, you know, you you often go around thinking whether it's yoga or, or you know, the media stuff that no one's doing it like yeah. you do it yeah but that doesn't mean that they're the way that they're doing it isn't as good no that's right and, and i think that's why it's important to find your niche you know you find your own little client group and your own niche and you work out what it is that you're good at and then you just to a certain extent you just stay in your lane you know like mm. i'm not i'm not particularly interested in or indeed i'm capable of of let's say competing against someone like james bennett with regards to race coaching because it's just not what I'm good at and it's not what mm-hmm. I have got experience in. But I do know what I am good at and that's the market that that, that, that I will go after. And it might be, you know, that, that you have exactly the same with the, the, the yoga studio as well, you know. Mm. Yeah. yeah. All right, so what's the future for the podcast next year? I'm, 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 presumably there's going to be a whole bunch of summer content as well. I'm yeah, forward so, to that. I mean, the, the summer stuff's... Well, actually, the, the corona stuff has actually made it a little easier to get hold of athletes it has isn't it nobody's around yeah nobody i mean no sorry everybody's around nobody's 
a way doing stuff. So, and, and I think most people are going, yeah, actually, I'd quite like to come and do some chatting because I've got nothing else to do. Well, I don't want to say <laughs> so, that's why you're here, Ed, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> never, never. Um, no, but it's, um, yeah, so the, the podcast, we're going into our third season now. It's yeah. just trying to grow it. And it, because it's, you know, and you, I'm sure you'll find the exact same sort of things. Um, because it it's growing organically, it mm. means that it just takes a little bit of time. But I like the fact that it's my baby and I can direct it where I want. Yes. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know, I'd like to see it take off a little bit more in terms of we're quite, because what we do is this, on the ski racing side is fairly unique in terms of a podcast perspective. Mm. Um, it means that we're, we're fairly global. So mm. And it's like thirty-eight percent of listeners are from America, yeah, um, which is quite fun. Mm. So just be, yeah, but yeah, so that's that side of things. And commentary got to keep going, and it's got world, got world champs next season, and the Olympics the season after. So before you know, it's going to be hectic schedules. I just hope that we get to do a bit of summer skiing before this is all. Well, uh, yeah, I hope so. And, you know, as soon as that Sasfay Glacier opens, I'm going to be there. I'm wax skis, <laughs> waxed, ready to go because I'm just desperate to ski, you know. I'm, I'm really and that's ready. funny. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Finished too early. Yeah. Although back here, I don't know what it's like out there, back here it's been like 25 degrees the last few days. So wow. it definitely doesn't feel like it's it's the spring. It feels like midsummer. Well, you know what's going to happen, though, and I'll, I'll predict this for anyone now, is that you wait and we'll all get released from this uh, this imposed house arrest in um in may start of may and it'll just piss down for, for may the whole, whole <laughs> month. i get guaranteed <laughs> everyone actually to be honest i don't think anybody will care i think everybody will be out playing football in the rain yeah it'll just be singing in the rain crazy. In, in pub gardens in the rain yeah it's true <laughs> right so ed plug yourself for uh corporate sponsorship uh speaking gigs uh, anything else that you want to do? Where can people find you? Uh, well, social media, really. Uh, just on Twitter, Instagram, at Ed Drake on both of those. I managed to get that on that train early. That was great, yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's, yeah, come and, come and find me. Uh, but, um, but thanks very much for having me. It's been great to chat. Uh, it's been fantastic. And, uh, I'm really, really pleased we had this chance to chat. And thank no, you it's been so good. much. Really, really cool. And um, it's a pleasure to have you on. Love your podcast. And, and I heartily thanks, recommend that everyone listens to it. Thank you. Well, keep up the good work and yeah. uh, stay healthy. All right. Thanks, buddy. I'll see you soon. All right. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.